When you're looking uh, for a particular place, trying to get somewhere, and you have an address, and yet you're not quite sure how to get there, what do you do? If you've been around long enough, I'd venture to guess that you've likely changed your method of finding a place, finding an address in the last 10 years or so. Where at one time we might have called someone to ask for directions, or we might have looked in our glove compartment and taken out a map and unfolded this huge map that fills our whole um, front window. Um, In our day and age, it's a lot easier. We have electronic devices that are designed to make it easier to arrive at our destination, or at least to find the way to get there. Where we used to depend on someone else's verbal direction sometimes in order to find a destination, as with most of the new technology these days, now we hardly need to talk to another human. As for maps, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I went through the glove compartment in my car. It was getting a little stuffed in there, and, and so I took the opportunity to throw out all of my folded maps. They were just taking up too much space, and I really didn't need them anymore because there's other ways. Yet with all of the new technology that we have, there are still times when we can't figure out how to get there. The technology doesn't always work. GPS maps aren't always trustworthy. They don't always give you the fastest way of getting somewhere. And sometimes they don't get you there at all. If the coordinates are off just a bit, they can take you who knows where. I know when we first moved into this new building, one of the electronic versions of a map mixed up our street and our avenue. And so people were ending up way on the south end of town, looking for 36th Avenue and 56th Street, rather than the opposite way around, 36th Street and 56th Avenue. For all our best efforts at making things easier and faster, sometimes we still can't arrive at our destination. And sometimes... Even the destination can be in sight, yet we can't seem to get there. When we first moved into the Calgary area now 18 years ago, I remember trying to get to a Costco on the south end. But in that case, it had got, I had gotten to where I had the Costco in sight. I could see the building, I could see the sign, but I couldn't get onto the streets that would take me there. It was right at the corner of two major thoroughways in in Calgary. If you know Calgary at all, it's right right on the corner of Deerfoot Trail and Glenmore Trail. And I could see it, but I just couldn't get there. I couldn't find the exit that I needed. I must have driven past that Costco probably about four different times without being able to get there. And finally, I pulled over to ask someone which exit would take me there. Now, I know some of you would say this is more of a gender issue than a traffic issue, but I won't go there. But that was one time when the destination was in sight, yet I couldn't find my way there. Well, Jesus Christ talked about himself as a destination of sorts. But he talked about himself as a destination that not everyone would, could find, or precisely uh, would find would be the better way of saying it. They needed to get to Jesus, but they just could not find their way to him. Finding our way to Jesus actually gets us to where we ultimately need, which is to God himself. But the only way to get to God is to come to Jesus. That's why he says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But that's how Jesus talks in the Gospels. He invites us to come. He says, come to me, come to me. In Luke 18, 
verse 16 to 17, there are some children there, kind of reminiscent of what we do here on Sunday morning. Some children are wanting to come to him, and, and the disciples there are trying to serve Jesus, and they're trying to make sure that these children, these infants, don't bother Jesus. But here's how Jesus responded. He says, it says, Jesus called them to him, saying, let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So he says, come. Let them come. Matthew 25, verse 34. He says, come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And maybe most familiar, Matthew 11, verse 28. He says, come to me. Uh, and it says there, come to, you, come to me all who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus saying, come, you need to come to me. The Gospel of John, which is where we've been for the last couple of months, also quotes Jesus' invitation to come to him. In John 6.37 it says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Or John 7.37, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And drink. Jesus is inviting people to come to him over and over again in the Gospels. Yet, one of the most confounding and confusing things of our human existence, for, for some reason, many people, most people, will not find their way to Jesus. They will not come to Jesus, even though, if they do come to Jesus, even... Uh, if they do arrive at Jesus by, in, in faith by believing, they will receive eternal life. That's the promise. You, you'll have life if you come to me. And yet, they don't. If you've been with us the last two weeks, we've been in John 5, and as we get to the end of that chapter, Jesus talks about why it is that people do not come to him. Remember a number of weeks ago now, we looked at John 3.16, and we there, try to figure out with such a great offer that God is giving us, why not everyone, why does not everyone believe? And he's still sort of on that same vein here, only now he's going to start explaining why that's so. In John 5, verse 40, Jesus says these words that sort of encapsulates this whole section. He says, you refuse to come to me that you might have life. And in those words, you sort of have the, the gist of the human condition. It's not that these people can't see Jesus. He's right there in front of them. He's the one that's talking to them. But it's that they, they refuse to come to him. Well, this passage will give us some reasons why it is that people will not come to Jesus, even though that great promise is there of eternal life. So follow along with me as I read, starting at verse 30 of John 5, right to the end of the chapter. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, speaking of John, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me 
that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in my name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Don't think that I'll accuse you. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this, your most precious word. Lord, may you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to be able to understand what you are saying to us here through the words of your Son, through the voice of your one and only Son. Lord, we pray that you would help us not only to hear these words, but to do them, and to be warned by them, and to be encouraged by them. Pray that your Spirit would do that work in our lives now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, these are Jesus' words here as part of a, a longer speech directed at the Jewish religious teachers. After Jesus heals a, a cripple right at the beginning of chapter 5 there, uh, those, these teachers are at first very angry because Jesus heals on the Sabbath. He heals this man on the Sabbath. But then their real issue is spelled out back In verse 18, look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Making himself equal with God. So that's the issue. So chapter 5 really marks the start of of a growing hostility against Jesus. On the one hand, he's he, he continues to grow in popularity, just in terms of people that are curious about his signs, these miracles that he's doing. He's a miracle worker. He's doing all sorts of sensational things. And so naturally people are starting to follow him. But on the other hand, even while he's gaining popularity, the hostility against him is starting to foment as well. And Jesus, rather than recoil and retreat and and maybe try to explain away what he means, actually doubles down on his claims and basically says, You're exactly right what you thought I said about being equal with God. But there's more. And and he gets into that starting in verse 19 and following. He he talks about being equal with God. And he also introduces them to the concept of the father-son relationship that exists between he and God. So there is equality in being, but there's also a relationship of, of submission, especially during his incarnation here, during the time that he is on earth. As the son, he listens to the father. He does exactly what the father tells him to do. And the father has given the son certain tasks. 
He's tasked the son with the capability of both raising the dead and of judging. And so Jesus, this teacher that arrived on the scene in Jerusalem and in the countryside around there, is claiming to be the very son of God. The Jews at that point weren't ready for that kind of claim. They had no concept of that. But more than making that claim about himself, Jesus actually confronts them personally as well. As the one who can both give spiritual life and as the one who could also decide final and physical judgment, they actually have to decide how they're going to deal with Jesus personally. If they love God and honor God as much as they say they love God and honor God, then they'll have to love and honor Jesus lest they be judged as not loving and not honoring God. Which will lead to a resurrection of judgment and not a resurrection of life. How it ends there at verse 29. And he keeps going. He picks that up in verses 30 and following. He knows what they're thinking in their minds. Because he knows where they're going to go next. What they're going to ask him. And so before they ask, he goes there. In their minds, they're likely thinking, it's one thing for you to say all this stuff about yourself. But our Bibles, which would have been the Old Testament, say that every claim, it says this in Deuteronomy, needs to be validated and verified by two or three witnesses. You can't just claim something on your own about yourself. It's got to be verified. And it requires at least two or three witnesses to do that. So who's going to attest to your claims? Who can you call forth as witnesses? That's what this section is all about. It's Jesus saying that I've got incontrovertible evidence given by not just one, but a multitude of witnesses, first and foremost by the one that you claim to revere, namely God himself, Yahweh. That's first and foremost, but also by the very scriptures that you hold so dear. And finally, by Moses himself, the one who gave the law that you revere so much. And so Jesus goes to the very people and things that they hold in the highest authority to prove who he is and to actually further infuriate the Jewish leaders and not only infuriate them, but actually implicate them. They are rejecting and refusing the very one that can give them eternal life. And what I've been saying all through this and what we need to know about all this is that this is not a uniquely Jewish issue. This is something that's a human issue. The, the things or the issues that made these Jews reject Jesus are the very same things that can make us not come to Jesus as the Savior of the world, as the one that God lovingly sent to the world, not just to Israel, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so we need to pay attention to this and to hear these warnings. Even us who profess Faith in Christ need to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Whether we, in fact, do believe in Jesus as the one who is the Savior of the world. Whether we, in fact, have found Jesus and come to Jesus and received Jesus. And so Jesus is about to answer the question, why don't people come to Jesus in the face of such incontrovertible and undeniable evidence? Why, people, why don't people come to him even though he offers eternal life? Why is it that people don't come to him, especially with 
the magnitude of the gift offered, being so undeserved and with the reward being so amazing, this amazing love that we just sang about. Why don't people come to Jesus when he can save them from going to the place where the Bible says the worm will not die and the fire will not be quenched? From a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we want to take a closer look at what it says here. First, like I said, Jesus brings forth all these witnesses. He he says in verse 31, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony isn't true. Or some versions say isn't deemed true. He means that it's an airtight case if if he only makes claims about himself. And so Jesus, it's, it's not an airtight case if he only makes claims about himself. And so Jesus brings himself down to uh, kind of a human system that we're familiar with. If someone is accused of something, that person needs more than just to defend himself. It helps if someone else can be a witness on his behalf. And so Jesus will prove himself on those grounds. He says in verse 32, there's another who bears witness of me, and I know that his testimony is true. That's talking about God the Father. And so he starts then parading these witnesses in that the Father has sent. First he brings in John the Baptist into this, if you want to call it a trial, there in verses 33 to 35. John the Baptist, his ministry was to point to the Son, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has borne witness, it says, to the truth, verse 33. And look at the reason, verse, uh, at the end of verse 33, so that you may be saved. And then Jesus says that there's something greater than John that bears witness, and that's Jesus' miracles, or he calls them here his works, in verse 36. They bear witness that the Father has sent me. The miracles should have been for them evidence that Jesus is God. Then in verse 37, the next witness is the Father himself, the very one that the Jews revered above all else. He, verse 37, has himself borne witness of me. How? Through his word, through the scriptures. End of verse 39, they bear witness of me. And finally, in verses 45 to 47, Jesus brings in Moses. All of these bear witness that Jesus is God. This is just one after the other. You put them all together, and it should be a slam dunk, insurmountable evidence, an open and shut case. But the point of the passage is that it's not. And it's not because they refuse to believe in the face of this overwhelming evidence. And Jesus is going to say exactly why it is that we as humans have a tendency to refuse and to reject truth about Jesus. You can see this rejection right through this passage. I'll just list them first and then we'll come back to them. In regard to John the Baptist, even though he was a lamp that shone on Jesus and declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God, verse 35 says, you were willing to rejoice a little while in his light. How about the miracles? Verse 36, well, they rejected those already back at the beginning of the chapter when Jesus healed the man at the pool. The only thing that these religious leaders cared about, not not that Jesus healed this man, but that Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath. How about the word of the Father himself? Verse 38, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. The scriptures, verse 39, you search them, yet you refuse to come to me. And Moses, 
Jesus says they don't really believe his writings either because they can't understand that Moses was actually pointing to Jesus. And so a good summary of this passage is that when it comes to Jesus being God, the Savior, all the evidence, whether it's Jesus or John or the miracles or Moses or God himself, keeps saying, yes, 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 he is the Son of God, but the Jews and humanity in general keep saying, no, no, no. Takes every witness and refuses it. Why? Well, Jesus tells us here. And I just want to quickly go through these three reasons and then kind of turn them around from their failure to believe to ways that we can make sure that we don't reject Jesus or to say it positively, to make sure that we not only see Jesus but that we find Jesus and come to Jesus so that we might have life. First, Jesus' evaluation on their response to John the Baptist's preaching, kind of made me stop and think. He said, you were willing to rejoice for a little while. Made me wonder what it was that made them stop short. Why did they rejoice just for a little while? What happened after that little while was over? Well, we have to remember that John's preaching really brought a lot of excitement right at the beginning, especially for the Jews. Here was someone that looked and sounded like one of the prophets that they had read about in their scriptures, kind of like Elijah. There was a lot of anticipation that this could be someone like Elijah of old, someone who had been prophesied about. He was talking about the kingdom of God that was at hand. This was great news for the Jews. The the kingdom was coming and was going to deliver them from the Romans. Everyone was going to hear him. And so the Jewish teachers from Jerusalem sent people out to hear John. And eventually, these leaders not only sent people out, but they came to hear John for themselves. But when they got there, John started preaching at them, and he started preaching at them to repent. And he called them nasty things like a brood of vipers and said, Who warns you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. When John started talking less about the kingdom and more about their sin, they didn't like that too much. As long as he preached about the kingdom, they rejoiced. But when he pointed at them and told them to stop doing what they were doing, the rejoicing stopped. And that made me wonder if we can be like that. We love powerful and inspiring and motivational speaking. We, we like when preachers talk about how bad the government is or to rally the troops to stamp out injustice and poverty. But how do you respond when the Bible starts to challenge you on the way that you live? On the way that you talk? On the people that you associate with? What happens when someone says, you got to stop doing that? You not, need to stop heading in that direction. Uh, The way you live doesn't match who you say you are as a believer in Jesus. You say you've repented, but isn't that thing that you're doing, you can fill in the blank, whatever it is, isn't that thing that you're doing wrong? You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. How do we respond to that? Most of us, I think, would say, whoa, time out. Now our joyful and exuberant preach it, brother, 
might quickly turn into, hold on there, brother. Stay out of my life. You can just preach in a general sense, but don't talk about me. Leave me alone. You are willing to rejoice for a little while. But then what? Do you enjoy preaching as long as it points to the general ills of society? But when it starts getting personal, do you get defensive and angry? Be careful about that. Jesus sent John so that they might receive Jesus. It was for your salvation. Yet they were willing to rejoice only for a little while. So turning this to a positive, rejoice when reproved. It is for your good. Rejection here is dangerous. It could send you headlong into disaster, not just in this life, but forever. And so invite God's reproof, invite God's discipline. It might come through his words, it might come through other people. Heed his warnings. Be glad, rejoice when God's word and God's spirit brings conviction and correction. Don't push against it. Accept it, receive it. Next, in verse 37, Jesus starts talking about his works that the Father has given him to accomplish. And then that God has come and he speaks in the person of his Son. Yet Jesus tells them, his voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. Even though Jesus is God's revelation of himself, you know, he says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, by rejecting Jesus, what are they doing? Who are they rejecting if Jesus is God? By rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting God, the very God that they claim to honor. And they are specifically rejecting God's word. It says it's not in you. You hear it, but it's not in you. It's not abiding in you keeps on going. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. If there was one thing that these Jewish teachers did very well, it was that they knew their scriptures. They studied them. They knew them backwards and forwards, inside and out. Their knowledge was admirable. In fact, it was commendable. It was, it was amazing what they knew, right down to the jot and the tittle. They labored over the scriptures, every part of the scriptures. Yet they totally missed the main point. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. They thought searching their scriptures and knowing their scriptures was the means to the end. Knowing scriptures for them was ultimate. But look what Jesus says. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is, you could say actually, insert actually here, it's actually they that bear witness of me. You're searching great. You're, you're studying fantastic. You know this stuff, but you're missing the main point. You might be memorizing it and studying it, but you're missing the fact that it all leads to me. That, that the, the map is pointing in my direction. It's all pointing to me and why it is that God sent me. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness of me Yet, you refuse, verse 40, to come to me that you may have life. There it is. They're searching the scriptures. Should have brought them right to Jesus. Yet it didn't. They had the GPS. They had the roadmap. But they did not come to Jesus. Why didn't they? It says because they refused. 
This is not a case of a faulty GPS or an out-of-date map. They actually had Jesus right there talking to them in person. They had John who came before to say that Jesus is the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. He identified Jesus as the one that did that and that would do that. And on top of that, they had the Old Testament scriptures that bore witness to Jesus. The Old Testament, you can search it, it talks about his birth, even right down to the town in which he would be born. It talks about his death, it talks about his resurrection, it talks about the gospel. Everything was right there for them. Yet they refused to come. This is a willing rejection. It's not that they could not come, that they were missing information and that they shouldn't be held responsible. It's that they would not come. They had all the information and the evidence, so they will be held responsible. That's what verses 41 to 44 are all about. I have come in my Father's name, yet you do not receive me. You don't seek the glory that comes from the only God, which the glory I think he's talking about, I take that to be his Son. They say they love God, but they're rejecting his Son. So they don't really love God. Lesson for us? Know your Bible, definitely. Read it, absolutely. But don't miss the point of the Bible. It's all about God's undeserving love coming to God-rejecting people in the person of God's only Son. Believe in Him, and you will have eternal life. Which brings us to Jesus' last point, which I think probably came as a bit of a twist to these Jews. Even though Jesus said before that he had been tasked with judging, here he's basically saying to these Jewish teachers that even before he judges them, their hero, their guy, Moses, the one on whom they have set their hope, is going to accuse them. Verse 46 says even Moses was talking about Jesus. How? Well, think about what Moses represents. He represents the the Old Testament. He represents especially the Ten Commandments plus all the Old Testament laws. He represents the law. They were given to Moses by God on Mount Sinai, but Moses would have known that law-keeping was not the end. Law-keeping was not the end. In fact, if it was law-keeping that would gain God's favor, no one would ever get there. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. By the works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of what to do and how to please God? No. Through the law comes knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Cursed be everyone, did you catch that? Who does, not ab- who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And James says if you've missed one, you've missed the whole thing. You see, thinking that law-keeping is the way to God is a death trap. Moses is an accuser. Why? Because we all sin and God's standard is perfect law-keeping. But praise God, he has sent the perfect law keeper. Who's that? It's Jesus. And that's why positively we can actually love the law of God. Why? Because the law and our inability to keep the law helps us understand our need for a Savior. 
That's where the law should bring us. God, I can't keep your law. What am I going to do? In comes Jesus. That's who God provided. That's who he sent, his one and only son. Sent the perfect law keeper. And so we can love the law of God. Why? Because the law and our inability to keep the law helps us understand our need. Without a Savior, we're lost. We can't set our hope on Moses. We can't set our hope on the law or on our law keeping. That would be the death of us. We set our hope on Jesus. We set our hope on Jesus. The one who speaks here and tells us who he is. We set our hope on Jesus, the perfect keeper of Moses' law, of God's law. There's a great verse in Galatians 3.24. It says, and I'm reading just from the New American Standard Version here, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. The law is not the end. The law is not the means of getting to God. But the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. That's why the psalmist could say, oh, how I love your law. And we can say that too only because of Jesus. We can love God's law. We can delight in God's law. Why? Because the law shows us the way to get to Christ. It's a map in many ways. You can come to Jesus turning away from your lawlessness and trusting in Jesus' perfect obedience and atoning sacrifice on your behalf. And so Jesus is here, right before us today, saying, Come to me. Come to me so that you may have life. Won't you come to him? If you have already, make sure you honor him. Make sure you worship him rightly. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have come to this earth in the person of your precious Son. Thank you for the great love with which you have loved us. We thank you for the invitation that we hear from the lips of your Son, the invitation to come to him so that we might have life. Thank you for the scriptures. Lord, help us to search the scriptures and help us as we search the scriptures to find Jesus there. We pray that you would help us to be aware of our uh, sinful inclinations, things that tempt us to go in other directions, tendencies to want to be in control of our own lives. Help us, we pray, to see the futility and the danger in those inclinations and help us at the same time to continue to look to Jesus, to listen to his word, to believe his word. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.